This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. Now, today on Talking Cities, I'm in Sydney, and I'm talking with internationally acclaimed urban design and planning expert, Peter Drogi. Hi, Peter. Hi, James. Good to see you. It's great to, uh, to have you here. Now, Peter is usually based in Berlin, where he's the director of the Liechtenstein Institute of Strategic Development. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a number of books published, including A Comprehensive Guide to an Urban Revolution, Urban Energy Transition from Fossil Fuels to Renewable Power, and 100% Energy Autonomy in Action. And we've also worked on a book together, haven't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. It was a wonderful book. It was. Mm-hmm. Climate Design, which uh, is also available on Amazon. So if anyone wants to uh, to check that mm-hmm. out, you can check that out. And you can also check out all of Peter's books uh, on his website. If you just Google Liechtenstein Institute for Strategic Development, the, the websites pop up. Yeah. And the um, website with my publications is called Eurist, E-U-R-I-S-D dot org. Well, you can check them out there, and you can also see some of Peter in action on YouTube as well on his website. But as you may have guessed, Peter's areas of, uh, of research and, and focus really include water and uh, energy-sensitive urban development in cities uh, around the world. Now, Peter is the professor and chairholder of the Sustainable Spatial Development at the University of Liechtenstein, uh, and he also holds a co-joint professorship at Australia's University of Newcastle, uh, the School of the Built Environment. And he's also taught at MIT, the University of Tokyo, and, and Sydney University. So, Peter, it's great to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Peter, we start with this question with all our guests. Mm-hmm. And the first question is, um, what is your favorite city around the world and why? Okay. I wish I was prepared to, prepared for that. Of course, it's Sydney at the moment. Is it? Yeah. It's a really fantastic. Cause you've lived here, haven't you? Before? I lived here for 17 years. Yeah. I came here as the Lend List Chair for Urban Design. Right. And then I began to expand that into my own practice. Yeah. And I led a international energy agency umbrella program called Solar City. Yeah. It was an OECD wide project. We in Australia led it. And the result, in fact, became the Solar Cities program of the federal government. We envisioned a more broad feed-in tariff-like strategy for all cities. Yeah. But this was pretty good. So, so when was when was that you were talking about renewable cities and uh, uh, solar, that, that program? Solar City, that, that started in 1999, went to about 2004. Right. And so it, we encouraged the federal government to keep funding that. Mm. But they decided to transform the idea mm. into the Australian Solar Cities program, mm. which was then staged as prototypic solar roof networking storage projects around the country. Mm. Perth, Adelaide, different mm. cities in Australia took that up. Yeah. $70 million at the time, Australian dollar right. program. And then you, you wrote a book, didn't you? Renewable City at that, just it was around about that time. Yeah, that, that actually flowed from that yeah. experience called Renewable City. And uh, that, that looked at Renewable energy for planners, for city planners and designers. Mm. And I looked at renewable urban design mm. for energy experts. Mm. And we tried to bring the two fields together because the, the hybrid of these two actions is what urban development today, in fact, has become. Yeah. Well, I hope we can talk about that because today, because I guess that was back in, you know, you really started thinking about this in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and it's 2018 right now. So a lot of time has passed since then. And it'll be interesting to see how much progress we've made over that, well, what's that, close to 30 years. Mm, 
yeah, well, the time does go on, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> it moves quickly. And, you know, technology has moved really, really quickly over that time frame too. So um, hmm. it'll be interesting to talk about that to see what sort of change and progress we've made. So Sydney is your favourite city. Now, what, what do you like about the city? Uh, it's uh, a never-ending potential to yeah. become better. At the moment, I do like the infrastructure spending. Yeah. But I'm not so excited about the lack of opportunities in that infrastructure spending to do what we call rapid regenerative infrastructure development. That means instead of having a 400 million Australian dollar fund set aside that's never being spent in New South Wales on renewables, we really ought to, and we do that in our practice, we ought to bring the main capital investment stream into a framework in which it delivers those as it unfolds infrastructure. Mm. So we, we're really advocating packaging infrastructure spending mm. so, well, with like, let's say, outcomes. Okay, well, let's say so we're spending $13 billion on the Northwest Railing, mm-hmm. um, bringing that into the city. Yep. Then, um, then that expenditure should contain an equal amount of renewable energy required to run that right. railing. Where, where would that energy be well, generated? Be anywhere? S- regional New South Wales? could be regional or it could be just uh, accelerating rooftop solar mm. or accelerating renewable energy um, in bio areas or what, whatever, you know, you can find commercially available. We're not mm. talking about subsidizing. We're, mm. we're just talking about investment in a portfolio of renewables that matches that. Mm. So if we did with every project, we have a quota for affordable housing. Mm. Why don't we have a quota for renewable energy mm installations, mm. not carbon credits, not creating a uh, portfolio of discounts in the carbon area, but concrete renewable energy projects that e- equate, ideally in the place itself. Mm. I mean, we have the technology, e-commerce right there at the forefront of making a lot of these projects energy autonomous, what we call. They, mm. they, they produce uh, across the year equal or more electricity or thermal energy than they require to run. Mm. That's possible, not only possible, but also profitable. Yep. So we've t- taken the two business models, property development and energy development. We merge them together and we call it the new regenerative infrastructure paradigm. Yep. Housing is infrastructure, energy is infrastructure, bring water and waste into the mix, and you've got what we really ought to be doing with all our infrastructure spending, yep. then we wouldn't have to worry about how to retrofit that later yep. or how you know how to get the government to spend the money that's aside already in ways that they can't figure out how. The answer lies in front of you, yeah. the daily infrastructure spending. So you said it's an equal amount. Does it have to be an equal amount, like $13 billion to build a railway? Does it have to be $13 billion in energy investment, or is it whatever it takes to, to run that facility? Whatever it takes to run the facility. It'd be substantially less than $30 billion mm. because uh, we, we actually did a study in uh, Switzerland yeah. for the National Railroad Company. Yeah. We looked at the grounds, the buildings and grounds, and we were funded by WWF and that Swiss railroad company, SBB, and they asked us, well, how much of our electricity demand can we produce on our side? We we calculated 40%. Mm. Just on the land that they own, if they convert to solar or use the water power they have in tunnels and so forth. So a substantial amount of the national electric requirement of the Swiss national railroad company 
can be generated by the real company on their own assets. Wow. And if you go to Germany, there's a goal by the National Railroad Company of Germany to become 100% renewable based on their own assets. Yeah. But they have a small difference from our calculation. They also used hydrogen yeah. fuel cell yeah. technology yeah. to use wind power and then create hydrogen from that excess uh, renewable. But you've got to have, I mean, so you've got, what's driving their reason to be 100% renewable? I mean, like in Australia, we actually don't have that imperatum. You know, so what, why would Transport for New South Wales right now, what, what's the policy direction? What, is it because they feel like it's the right thing to do? Their, their department feels like the right thing to do? Or is this need to be led by a government to mandate that all new development essentially well, can be are, energy neutral? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, James. Um, these are corporatized entities. They're uh, responsible upon themselves. To some extent, they're guided policy. They have to be on time. They have to pay their own way. They don't, you know, they have to have not too many um, accidents and that sort of thing. Yeah. But within that framework, they can pretty much decide what they do. They're like a, a company. Yeah. And so, like any company, they ask themselves, what are the, from an infrastructure point of view, the future development risks in our business model? Hmm. And energy is the major one. Because if they continue to rely on nuclear and, and coal-fired power mm. and don't do it themselves enough to ensure that their power portfolio yeah. is taken care of, they're running into trouble in a very few years. So it's a resilience position. It's a business resilience it's position. A, it's a financial securing mm. of a uh, stable future decision. Yeah, It's investing in a future where they know they don't have to depend on all kinds of vagaries. Mm risk in the system, mm. uh, policy risk, there's enormous amount of policy risk, decisions can change. Yeah. Uh, and this, this, this paradigm of renewable and autonomy, which you, you can understand most easily and quickly in a small house somewhere in the western suburbs, you yeah. know, solar and heat pump and so forth, also that applies to large infrastructure. Yeah. Because the large infrastructure has enormous space requirement, mm. an enormous ability to leverage that space for their own purposes. But, you know, there is also a much larger paradigm behind that. These companies realize that the idea of low carbon is not enough. Zero is not enough. Mm. That as a system, you have to go below zero mm. to be able to recapture some of the excess CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. Yeah. But in order to get there, reform agriculture and forestry and wetlands and so forth. All that stuff has to happen very quickly to, mm. to be able to sequester more carbon. They understand that if you don't go to zero fossil fuel content immediately, you stand no chance to actually do the hard work, which is to get the excess carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah. And the public doesn't always appreciate that. The media don't really cover that side. Mm. But Decision makers in boardrooms who are educated enough to read the paper and add two and two together and don't read too many IPCC reports, which yeah. actually obfuscate the issue, mm. they do understand that. So building a railroad or maintaining it is a 50-year timeline mm. project. All the infrastructure we look at, the Harbour Bridge, the tunnels, all that's a long-term investment. Yeah, And it, it takes a long time to plan it, but it takes even a longer time to appreciate the value and validity of the investment. Yeah, And yeah. for instance, if there was no rail on the bridge, when, where would we be? Mm. Those kinds of questions, I think, are still valid today, yeah. except that the 
demands are very different. The demands are to create a, a not just a low carbon, an alt, a very low carbon future, which is a, a future that has a carbon balance below zero. Yeah. In Australia, I'm not. this is not talked about in boardrooms as much as I would suggest that it probably should be. Would that be your observation? Is that a fair observation that there's not enough focus down here in this part of the world on well, I, renewables and... To some extent, Australian industry is... Um, I mean, certain parts of Australian industry, and I include the consulting industry, but of course the other financial industry and the, you know, the systems uh, development, the mobility industry. There is, in a way, more or equally amount of exciting movement here as it is the, in Europe, mm. and, and it moves rapidly, it changes rapidly, it's very dynamic. There's a lot of synergies in there, but above that, you do have this kind of strange. I don't know what to call it, dead weight, but it's sort of kind of a counteracting narrative by by governments hmm. that that seem to question that yeah. for some reason. Yeah, and nobody really understands why, or you know, want to understand why, because most of the industry shakes their head. And you have the same problem in Europe at the moment. In Germany, we have that very same problem. I I, I spoke a few weeks ago at a big energy conference run by a, a regional utility in Frankfurt. Yeah. And first spoke the politicians, the Greens, the Labour equivalent, the Conservatives, uh, and then the industrial leaders. And I, I, you know, when the politicians spoke, I looked around and the only industrial he- heads were shaking, saying, rolling their eyes, etc. And then the first industrial leader spoke up after the Green speaker and said, well, those were the utterings of the dinosaurs. And that's not, now let's talk about real business. And mm. they talked about going renewable. Mm. Well, the Greens also, you know, just talked about carbon neutral and mm. some vague future concept like carbon neutral. I'm, I'm saying that it's vague because it doesn't focus on the issues. It's focused on carbon, mm. which is one of the most common elements in the universe. So yeah. low carbon, to me, makes little sense. Mm. But, but lo- no fossil fuel content. That I understand. Yeah. They don't want to touch that word. Why is that, though? Is it, be- is it because of the influence of the fossil fuel companies? or No, I think... Is the, it the fear of the unknown? I think a lot of politicians are, are fundamentally uneducated mm. when it comes to technical issues. Yeah. And they kind of recite a truth or truism which was probably you know, the main narrative when they were younger or when mm. they were educated. And they're mm. afraid of raising issues that they know they will get political flag from traditionally conservative parties. And they don't have the, let's say, the intellectual agility to use that, you know, that resistance and guide it into a positive future. Mm. Because nobody questions the need to have jobs. Nobody mm. questions the need to make money. Nobody questions the need to have secure energy supply. All these goals, but, you know, the perceived conservative areas is what, can be achieved through a renewable paradigm, hmm. just with a lot more exciting dynamism in the innovational area and more capability or capacity of the system to make more money for more people. Hmm. It's a different world. Yeah. And yes, there are some incumbent industries that, that will have to adjust. But from a national economic and policy point of view, there's just no reason not to go in that direction. And if you have politicians that don't understand it, then you voted for the wrong people. Yeah. Do you think it would be possible for, I mean, uh, for Sydney to be 100% renewable within a 20-year time frame? 
Yes, I, I is, is this that. is this technically possible? The technical side is the easiest part. I think the political side is the hardest. But the technical feasibility is there, and mm. it's quite easy. Well, relatively easy in Sydney. Mm. What about economically then? So we have we're a major exporter and generator of coal in this state, um, and we have you know people that work on coal-fired power stations on the central coast how do we transition those industries into a renewable i imagine you can make just as much money and create just as many jobs out of renewables as you can out of fossil fuels would that be right or not now when you looked at the old let's say AT&T um, telephone company in the United States back in the 80s everyone thought you would lose a lot of jobs and a lot of hardship and economic war would uh, commence uh, if that was broken up into competitive smaller companies separating mm. the network business from the telecommunications business from the you know, phone line business and so forth. But the opposite occurred. Mm. A great innovational drive happened. Mobile phone came about. A number of uh, regional companies emerged. And, and the merger of media voice communications and, and images happened, the sort of multimedia revolution mm. wouldn't have occurred without that. Mm. So it's sometimes important to kind of say, look, you know, this kind of monolithic set of supply frameworks, we need to really look at them carefully because they're slowing us down mm. and they're slowing themselves down. They're mm. slowing their own job. So when you say monolithic, do you mean big centralized supply points? Yeah, well, big, let's say coal large coal fields attached to large generators attached yep. to not so many jobs, actually, when mm. you compare it to the renewable sector. I mean, you, we've got international figures that show globally a decline in coal jobs mm. and, and globally a, a massive rise in renewable jobs. Yeah. So if, if you imagine a, a curve starting in 2000, ending in 2018, mm. you've got a consistent and steady drop in global employment in coal. Mm. And you have a consistent and steady steeper rise in, in solar and wind job related jobs. I mean value chain. That's yeah. product development, finance, but also putting the stuff in the ground. Mm. And if you look at today, you look at the two figures, the coal is less than ten percent of that. Mm. The coal jobs available, less than ten percent of the total available in the renewable sector. So you've got a 10 to 90% uh, relationship in 100% energy sector jobs. Yeah. And I don't see very many people in the coal sector are not capable to be retooled or retrained. You mentioned China before, and I imagine where we can have the biggest impact is in China and India, isn't it, in terms of reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere? And what's happening in these countries develop really quickly? Are they now developing renewable cities? Or is it a mixed scorecard? Well, I think the highest impact we still will have in the, in the developed world, actually, because mm. we still have a very high fossil fuel content in the United States and Europe. I mean, in Germany, I praise Germany, but 30% of its electricity is renewable. 30% is still coal, mm. and the rest is nuclear and, mm. uh, and gas, uh, natural gas, which is also fossil fuel. So. Yeah. And we've got still globally a uh, staggering almost 95% dependence on oil in the transport sector, mm. globally, mm. 95%. So we have a lot of work to do. And this is transport, in the, not just in India, but also in, in the U.S. and in Europe and in Australia. Yeah. But 
there's so much disruptive energy in this, in particularly the transport sector. You can see that collapse in a good sense, that dependency in, in a relatively short period of time. Because mm. the, within that system, you already have so many dynamic forces. Mm. You don't have to change it top down or bottom up within the system. There's changes in the railroad sector, changes in the aviation sector, the changes in the car sector mm. that can overnight, not overnight is exaggerated, but very quickly bring that down. And I do see there's a global Well, hang on, it's, it's almost over. I mean, look what's happened with the electric vehicles. It was only, you know, 15 years ago that there was no investment in electrical vehicles, and it's in the space of 15 years. Yeah, we just have to make sure that we, what I said in the beginning, we, we as you... Invest in electric vehicles. You also make sure that you have the renewable energy production and generation capacity to power those vehicles. Mm. I mean, it's better to power electric vehicles with, say, coal than power them with petrol. This is so much more efficient yeah. and requires so much less energy yeah. and, and so forth. But it's still pretty bad. If your argument is, I'm going to build more coal-fired power blankets with an electric vehicle, that's not you know the idea. We've got to... Keep your eye on the expansion of the desired expansion of the you know e mobility sector. Yeah, and build renewable energy capacity to match that. So, okay, have you, have you have you done any work to think about the impact if we switched all of our internal combustion engines over in a city overnight into e cars, electric cars? What impact would that have on the grid and the supply or demand for electricity? It'll increase it by at least uh, I would say twenty five to thirty percent. Not doubling. I thought you were going to say more than that. No, no, I don't. We actually did a modeling in in the region that I live in. I mean, in uh, well, because there are hundred kilowatts these batteries in these cars. Yeah, the batteries are, but you have to look at what the actual mileage is and that's yeah. driven, yeah. not the capacity of the yeah. batteries, because the capacity of the batteries can also serve household energy yeah. and I understand. You know, yeah. but it, it's really what the actual energy required to transport people in vehicles mm. requires. And so there's a region uh, in the south of Germany which is common to the southern part of Germany, the eastern part of Switzerland, the western part of Austria, and includes Liechtenstein. And that's the region of Lake Constance. Yeah. But this is a region that's 15,000 square kilometers. Hmm. includes the city of Zurich and, you know, some other less-known cities. But we conducted a modeling exercise of the future energy demand in all sectors, including mobility, mm. industry, and so forth, agriculture, housing, and the potential of the region to generate enough electricity to not only power that region, but also provide the thermal energy, which is the, the hardest one mm. to achieve in, in, in Europe because of the cold. still quite cold climate, and mobility. Yeah. So we found that by 2027, without much really enormous amount of effort, we can produce enough electricity. To renewable electricity. Renewable electricity to meet all the electric demand. And from there on, we have a surplus production. If we keep increasing, mm. that we can then put in thermal energy and convert to mobility support so that by 2050, we have 100% thermal, electric, and mobility supply. And when I talk about mobility, I mean cars. Mm. Assuming that all current petrol cars are converted to electric, this is a you know assumption mm. that may not happen. You know, you know, but if it did, it would be not trivial, but it would be doable to do the you know sort of autonomy on a regional scale. On this plan, 
to turn Sydney 100% renewable mm. in the next 20 years, what sort of steps do we, is it, like we, so we had our tariff, it was our, tar- it was our feed-in tariff that really drove this uptake of solar, wasn't it? There was yep. a financial incentive. It made sense. It was a good investment to do it. Yeah, somebody would actually buy the electricity off you. Well, 66 cents at the time. That's a lot per kilowatt hour when you're really only paying, I don't know, 30 cents for coal power. Yeah. But the feed-in tariff always had envisioned a ramping down. Well, it did, and it yeah. ramped out of 10 cents. In Australia? Yeah. Yeah. So well, maybe too fast. We've got a very decentralised renewable energy system in Australia in that mums and dads have rooftop solar. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it better to have centralised control of that with big renewable energy farms, wind farms, solar farms, thermal farms? Horses for courses. Horses for courses. Yeah, horses for courses. I mean, if you have, somebody has a, lo- a, a large station... Somewhere out back near the grid, uh, nobody should keep them from developing the solar capacity. Mm. But at the same time, I, I'm I'm a believer in uh, meeting the energy requirements at the source. So the moms and dads' houses and homes they should they should all have solar. Yeah, they should all have if they require cooling, they should have heat pumps or solar yeah. cooling. They should have the means to afford a solar house that's you know thermally designed. Yeah. So it doesn't require <laughs> cooling and necessary. Yeah. And all these things should be available at the source. Yeah. I don't believe in a world of big fears. But I'm also not saying that that shouldn't happen. Yeah. We can't be 100% decentralized because we need, we need a grid in a city, don't we? From a resilient point of view, if there's a disaster, if there's anything happens, you know, we, we have to have a grid to... Well, you need the grid to, um, to make decentralization work. Yeah. It's just a very different grid. It's not a grid that goes one way from a central source to users at the periphery, but it's a grid that actually lights up at the periphery and connects the users of the periphery. Yeah. And that grid can be a multitude of grids or it can be a converted uh, existing grid, Mm. but it's a grid whose uh, priority has almost switched 100% into a different kind of performance paradigm. Yep. And if you have that ability to do that in a grid, then you have a much higher efficiency and uh, efficacy in terms of exchanging okay. electricity. The, the centralized grid is then to facilitate micro, a whole lot of microgrids. Yeah, or individual users. Or if you have a regulatory environment, uh, Sydney as a whole could be a single microgrid. You know, if you yeah. don't penalize people for exporting the electrons to the public or the common grid and say, actually, we encourage that. Yeah, we encourage that James in uh, Pitwater is selling electrons to to Peter in uh, where, you know wherever he lives, Surrey Hills or, or or Campbelltown, and we don't really punish people to begin to use that common grid and and buy it off them for six cents and sell mm-hmm. it back to, for twenty. Now, are there any renewable energy technologies that are really exciting you at the moment? Battery storage is that a big deal? Seems to be a big deal here in Australia. I mean, again, uh, I think that's, um, it's not a standalone technology. It's something that is serving a, an energy transition, mm. essential in this energy paradigm. But what really is exciting, I mean, it's not very exciting in terms of innovation terms, but what is really the most exciting is, is this, on the one hand, this dramatic drop in the price or cost of production of renewable energy yeah. uh, worldwide. Yeah. Uh, just a plummeting. Yeah. And at the same time, a rise in investment. So even though the actual capital cost of renewable energy systems has dropped so dramatically, we still have consistently 
far more, almost twice as much annual investment in renewables than in fossil fuel and, and nuclear combined. Wow. Uh, annually, year after year. Wow. So that, that is what excites me mm. more than, you know, whether it's a thin film or some special innovation. Yeah. Uh, although that, what excites me as a, you know, also as a practicing planner and uh, designer and so forth is this still totally under, underutilized opportunity to merge energy system with architecture or mm. landscape and urban spaces. We're still nailing the old PV panel to a color bond roof instead of really thinking about, well, is that color bond roof maybe not needed or should we think about ways of replacing the envelope of a building mm. with an electric active surface? This mm. is not new, but I know I've been to many architecture schools in this country and elsewhere. It's almost like people don't want to hear about, mm. which is stunning. And there's mm. some centers of excellence also here in Sydney who focus on that, but the cutting edge of architecture and landscape architecture should be in that space, urban design and so forth, urban space, public space design, mm. is to utilize this vast surface that we're looking at when we look at Australian cities mm. and really think about retrofitting, mm. but also compelling all new buildings to do that, to actually not just cover themselves in PV, but really rethink the architecture from an uh, energy active mm. point of view. Yeah. And to not forget the need to, to have this thermal performance that it's actually, we are in a, in a hot and dry climate. Well, why, um, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about the Power Ledger? Well, the Power Ledger is an innovation that uh, commenced in Perth and yeah. um, a stable of uh, ingenious younger and youngish people that earned a, a keep in the, in the energy sector on the one hand, but also in the financial sector, Gemma Green and Dave Martin. Uh, old friends of mine, particularly Gemma, worked at uh, J.P. Morgan in London when I met her first. And, you know, sort of on the back of this paradigm shift of the energy web, she had that brainwave of using Bitcoin technology for energy trading. Mm. We're pursuing different projects. Uh, like, uh, for instance, the um, there's a 2,000-unit urban development project that we won, I mean, LISD won uh, with uh, in a small consortium of designers and planners the first prize in an international competition for. It's essentially a new, new development, green fields, or and not a, a brownfields development on a military site. Mm. Imagine some, you know, landcom project. It's, it's like that. Yeah. But it's a little denser. It's 30 hectares, about a little bigger than Victoria Park, but about the same. Yeah. Sort of. And we are committed, and we have the developers' commitment to make it renewable energy autonomous right? and create a water system, which is not just water-sensitive in terms of its stormwater capability, but also process the sewer processing mm. on-site so that we actually then use the fermentation capability of the sewage to drive a biogas set of generators that provide peak electricity when we need it. So that's the concept. And for that, we need a trading platform because we then enable the different users of that community to uh, share in that common infrastructure mm. and to invest in storage or e-mobility and so forth, either as individual market players or as a community, a strata community of market players. Yeah, And that's one example of of several projects we're pursuing, and uh, hopefully they'll all work out beautifully. 
So are, are you talking about using the, the Power Ledger um, technology to trade credits within this community? Is that, that, is that what you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, to sell and buy electricity, really. Yeah. Not just credits, but actually uh, kilowatt hours. Yeah. Peter, one thing I didn't ask you at the start of this discussion was you have been driven um, in the renewable sector as it relates to planning and city creation for a long time now. As I said, it's close to 30 years, and you you were doing this a lot before a lot of other people were. What has driven you? Is it that peak oil is on its way, or what has been driving you to really transition the world into renewables? Just the discovery that our civilization is not just driven by but defined by fossil fuels mm. it's just profoundly <laughs> it's created. in everything it's in everything Every, plastic, and all plastic cotton shirts i mean it goes as far as that you know the, it's been a push by the uh, u.s government for people to buy more plastic why to take up you know the the sagging oil. shell oil prices mm. <laughs> shell oil prices yeah. <laughs> that's a shocking Situation is an existential situation, which reminded me uh, on the writings of great philosophers. I talked about, for instance, Doctor Faustus. You know, we have a wonderful life, but you sell your soul to the devil. Mm. Or sayings by the Venezuelan oil minister in the 1970s, who was one of the founders of OPEC, mm. and that oil minister coined the famous uh, saying that oil is the the devil's uh, feces. <laughs> that <laughs> And they were building an economy on oil, but he realized that it actually destroyed the economy. Yeah. Just the nature of the industry. Yeah. And that realization, on my quest to, to look at the most sort of profound aspects of cities, moving from architecture to urban design to landscape design mm. and to trying to understand the city as a communication. And I'm, one of my early books is called Intelligent Environments. And it's describing the uh, merger of IT, telecommunications and the built environment mm. on the back of this information revolution paradigm of the 80s and 90s, which is now called smart cities, really. Yeah. But I didn't realize that's not really going to the core of it either. And then, you know, I just, I don't know, one day just sort of, I realized it's actually in that world that we have created ourselves by falling into an oil patch. Mm. We've created this wonder world, which is actually largely a illusory short-term bubble and mm. uh, a beautiful bubble or painful for some and mm. beautiful to others mm. but if you try to sort of touch the edge of the bubble you have to describe that mm. and, and and if you want to stay active in the job and you've got to be active in that maintenance of a path towards making that reality sustainable by replacing that terrible energy source yeah so we talked, uh, when I opened this conversation as well, I talked about uh, an observation. I wouldn't mind getting an observation from you of how we've progressed over the last 30 years in our transition to renewables. H- has it been as fast as you had envisaged? Have you seen as much change or are we at a, a critical point right now? You talked about the lo- you know, the relatively lowering price of renewable energy as compared to fossil fuels. Well, it's a lot slower than I uh, hope. Uh, but it's a lot faster than you would think when you look at the media. Mm. If you look at the discourse in the newspapers mm. about, you know, should we maintain coal or not? And it's almost virtually no discussion about the real issues. But I mean, look at the, the industrial shifts occurring in the investment community and in large parts of the mobility sector, the car sector, the generation, the rise of solar and wind as a, as a source. The shift is massive. Mm. It's a massive shift, mm. and it continues. Mm. 
uh, I just hope it, it grows exponentially mm. and it doesn't sag, you know, in a kind of a mode of, uh, of fatigue or something mm. because it's a, ultimately an, uh, a self propelling dynamism. That's mm. the most exciting part of it. That despite the efforts of slowing it down mm. by commentators or some political leaders, it has this in massive momentum, which is really exciting to be part of. It is. Yeah. But that's capitalism though, because now it's making money. It stacks up. Yeah, it's capitalism, but capitalism is maybe one of the most regulated systems of market there is because we can't have a free market in capitalism. It's guided. And so I think we could have a much freer capitalism if, for instance, we, we dropped the trillion US dollars worth of uh, subsidies that keep the fossil fuel industry alive. If we drop that, we don't need any, do anything anymore, <laughs> you know, because all the so-called subsidies and uh, feed-in tariffs for renewables operate just in a small sector of this huge fossil fuel subsidy bubble to, to counteract it a little bit. Mm. But we need to drop that. And at the same time, do the structural changes required to guide the economy in, in its capitalist mode to a new economy where everyone has full employment and can look forward to a, uh, an innovative workplace and research environments and that sort of thing. Mm. We always end our conversation by giving you a magic wand. Oh, um, good. Yeah, so with your magic wand, you can do anything you want to your favorite city, which at this, we open the conversation with your favorite city being Sydney. So, um, so what would you like to apply your wand to Sydney and achieve? Well, I would uh, use my wand to turn the turnbulls around and to, I mean, I mean, all political leaders that are enlightened, mm. but maybe mm. feel constrained. And to say, look, let's adopt a renewable or regenerative rapid infrastructure model where we just compel with every infrastructure investment, whether it's housing or roads mm. or rail, to enable a equal amount of energy, but perhaps also sustainable water systems to be generated that support that. Yeah. Not more, not less. But to support. What we are doing, whether it's a maritime development or whether it's a land lease project or whether it's a rail or whether it's the West Connex or whatever it is, there's a huge amount of money uh, applied there, which if invested in a marginal sense into these other technologies and means of generating resources, marginal really compared to the main investment, mm. that it actually becomes self-supporting there. You don't, that's not a subsidy. That's mm. something that generates new industries yeah. and that ability to, to do what we actually all have to do. Everyone, including the, the incumbent industries, is to move to a new energy and resources paradigm in our infrastructure development. Mm. That would be my magic one. And that could be a game changer for Sydney, couldn't it? If we stand up and say that all new development will actually take this approach and we become known for that, becomes our brand across the world. It would be unique. Thank you, Peter. It's great to have you in Sydney. It's, uh, we haven't seen you for a while and it's great to have you back. And, well, I'll uh, be back. Well, let's hope you're back and we'll have you uh, on the podcast as well next time when you come back to hear what you've been up to. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. Thank you.